All right, as our ushers are passing out note sheets and Bibles, I feel compelled to clarify something that Jeff said in our uh, announcements earlier. Not only is Pete um, fond of our secretary, he's married to her. So I just want you all to know that. If you have not had the pleasure of meeting Katie Rapolis, she is a wonderful lady, and she's just recently started doing our secretarial work as uh, Jill has taken a full-time job working at a preschool locally, Celebration Preschool. And so get to know Katie. She's, she's an excellent uh, uh, worker. She's got a great heart for the Lord. And uh, Pete and Katie are kind of the dynamic duo. So they're involved all over the place, and we're grateful for them. It's been cool to see new faces kind of involved with, with leadership here and with serving and to have different uh, people doing our call to worship and different people doing our prayer and announcements. It's great to see the whole body of Christ working together uh, to make a Sunday morning what it is. And so we're grateful for each one of them. And, uh, and if you haven't yet found a place to use your gifting, if this is your church and you love this place and God is growing you here, but you have not yet started to serve God in some capacity, we really uh, would, would encourage you to talk to us about some place that you might fit in. We've got several different ministries that could use some help right now. Um, our kids club is grown tremendously. We've got 45 students in there right now, and we have fewer workers than we had last year. So if anybody had the time to work with us just a couple hours a week on Thursday afternoon, uh, we would really love to have the extra help. Uh, we've got some spots in Children's Church that could use some serving. So uh, if God has not yet plugged you in, let me know, and we'll find a place for you to serve the body of Christ. <clears throat> Has everybody got their Bibles? You can open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 6 if you're not there yet. When I was in a, a college, I, I had to work my way through school, and so uh, I started waiting tables. Uh, and I'm a preacher, so my job is to teach the Word, not to tell you funny stories. But if you want a funny story, go ask my wife how I got the job waiting tables. She was a much better waitress than I ever was a waiter. So I uh, talked to her about that afterwards. But... Waiting on tables had its ins and outs, especially if you had to wait tables on Sunday afternoon. Now, you know, as a Christian, I want to worship the Lord God on Sunday. I don't want to have to work on Sunday if I don't have to. We know we live in a place and in a day and age where sometimes working on Sunday is necessary. So there were times when I had to pick up a Sunday afternoon lunch shift, and it was kind of a mixed bag. It was good and bad to the Sunday afternoon lunch crowd. It was usually quite busy, which is good if you're a waiter because you don't want to be standing around in the kitchen twiddling your thumbs half the time wishing people would come in and buy food from you because that means your tips go down. So it's good to have a busy Sunday afternoon. That's a good thing. People pour, pour in after church services and they all want to eat and they all want to talk. Uh, but the fact that they just went through two hours of soul-convicting preaching means that by the time they get to you, they are hungry. They are hungry to eat. They're hungry for a little bit of relief after the conviction of the Word has been on their heart. So people are usually pretty demanding after church on Sundays as well. So if you work the Sunday afternoon shift, you often find that people want their food quick. Uh, they want it done right the first time. And then because of the unity of the Holy Spirit, they want to sit and talk forever. So they fill up your tables and you don't get as many, many customers coming through on a Sunday. So there's good and there's bad as, waiting tables, as far as waiting tables on a Sunday afternoon goes. Now, I come into this pulpit each Sunday acutely aware, especially during second service, that some of you are physically hungry right now and are looking forward to the lunch phase of your day. But part of what preaching the Word really needs to be about is helping the people of the church have a greater appetite for more significant things. The preaching that you experience on a Sunday morning should help you have a hunger and a thirst for the Word of God, a hunger and thirst to grow in your experience and your knowledge of the Lord God, a hunger to serve Him more and to be more involved with the eternal things that He is doing in the world. 
to put the spotlight on Jesus Christ in such a way that he is magnified, that he is glorified, is one of the chief aims of our preaching of the scripture, so that all, all who behold him might love him all the more. Your elders pray regularly that God would help us to ignite in you a greater appetite for eternity. And so with that in mind, our text this morning is going to be speaking on the appetite of man, and we find our text in Ecclesiastes chapter 6. I'll be reading verses 7 through 9 for us to study through this morning. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. Let's bow our heads together as we ask the Lord to bless our time in His Scripture. God, we don't want to be plagued with vanity. Father, as we live in a world where there are many things that are dying and passing away, we want our hearts and minds set on that which is going to last. And so I do ask, Father, that as we look at these scriptures, these passages from Ecclesiastes that are not always easy to interpret, they're not always easy to preach, they're not always easy to receive, Lord God, that I pray that you would make our hearts soft and malleable, that you might shape us into the people that you have called us to be. So I pray in humility, Lord God, that you would help us be holy as you are holy. We beg for your help in that because we know that that is not something we can achieve at all apart from you. So fill us with your spirit. Let your presence be evident here, God. We trust you and we worship you as we read and study and think upon your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Solomon tells us here that all the toil of life, all the struggles and hard work that seem to be like vanity at times, that seem like endless effort without resolution, it all boils down to human beings trying to satisfy their mouths. Look also to Proverbs in 16.26, a book also written by the preacher of Ecclesiastes, where Solomon writes, A worker's appetite works for him. In other words, it motivates him. His mouth urges him on. There is a universal appetite in the hearts of all men and women that yearns for something that it currently does not have. And so in our very basic nature, man is something of a consumer. Man is trying to get what he thinks he needs to survive. He is striving to satisfy a constant hunger that seems impossible for him to quench. Even when we find temporary ways to ease that hunger, it always seems to return in one form or another. It's worth noting that it was not always this way with man. When God created Adam and Eve, he designed them to live in a state of basic satisfaction, not on a constant feeling of want and need and lack. He called them to be satisfied in him. All of creation was put together in such a way that man's needs would be met. Adam and Eve had plenty to eat in the garden. They were secure in, in that death was not really a threat to them yet. Life abounded and, and they would not have died had sin not entered the garden. God had ensured that they essentially had the companionship that they needed, both with himself and also with each other. He provided Eve as a companion to Adam so that they could complement one another and share this journey of life together. Things were good in the garden. 
Man was not lacking in contentment. It wasn't until this shady character, the serpent, introduced envy and discontent into God's ideal garden environment that man began to be burdened by this perpetual, unfulfilled hunger for something else. Man's relative ignorance meant that he was vulnerable to the deception of an outside voice like the one of the deceiver. Eve was convinced by the serpent's lies that there was more to life, that she was missing out on something that God was perhaps holding back from her, and that if she disobeyed God and ate of the fruit, she might get it. And so Eve sinned, and Adam followed suit right after Eve did. And so then in in Genesis 3, we see as the story unfolds that God is aware of this failure in his creation, and he calls them to task upon it. He lays their sin before them, and then he levies curses upon first the woman, then the man, and then the serpent as well. Read what he has to say to Adam. And to Adam he said in verse 17 of Genesis 3, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So there are different aspects of this curse that God levies upon Adam. Adam and Eve were occupied with things to do in the garden. It's not like labor itself is a curse. They were working happily for God and were satisfied in their labors. But upon this sin, as Adam and Eve offended this holy God and had to be cast away from them, the labors of life would now become a burden to them instead of a joy. Human beings in that moment of sin began to be creatures plagued by death. And so the curse of death was upon them. They were going to have to fight against the hostilities of the world, rather to be um, nourished by them day in and day out. And so sin destined us to a state of want and need. The original state of being in the garden was life. Death had not yet entered in because sin had not yet entered in, but now that it was there, there was a restless yearning in the heart of man and woman, continually struggling to find satisfaction. Our appetite is like a constant companion to us, to such a degree that even when we do seem to have enough, we're keenly aware that enough might not be there tomorrow. And so we struggle to even enjoy the plenty that we have today. Solomon's using the obvious and literal hunger that we have for food to describe this appetite and illustrate it for us. But the subject of the appetite goes beyond eating and drinking. Man has a desire always for more, more comfort, more relationships, more control, more experiences, more wisdom, more happiness, always more. There is such a perpetual yearning for what we don't have that our concept of what enough even is has become drastically distorted. No matter how much of something that you get, your human nature will try to raise the standard of what will satisfy you. So that your natural tendency is always to want more, even if God has given you plenty, even if you have enough. And so the man who has worked so hard and so diligently to, to build his wealth and can rightly be called a millionaire, sits and contemplates what it would like be like to be a billionaire. 
Having millions is not enough. They, they want more. They want greater security, more flexibility. The person who is trying to ease their pain by smoking marijuana, that's how they deal with their anxiety. For a while, that seems to be enough. But eventually, they begin to yearn for something stronger, for heavier drugs to take away the, the anxiety that they have, to make them hide from the difficulties of life something that lasts longer, something that creates a greater euphoria in them. Those who seek thrills want to go ever faster. They want to push the edge farther. They want to come closer to disaster, hopefully without going over that line. But extreme is never extreme enough for them. Even in those who do not come across as competitive or driven, there still is this restlessness of heart. There still is this untamed appetite to the degree that a man and woman who have been married together for so many years, his wife has been good to him, she has looked after his needs, she has helped raising the children, she has uh, contributed to the household, she has been a good wife, and yet his eyes begin to wander to something different. He begins to imagine what it would be like to be married to someone else, and he can't be content with the woman that God has provided for him. Unhappiness with the disappointing parts of our jobs makes us want to leave even though God has provided for our family through that job, through that work, and through the monies we have earned in that position. Constantly think about maybe upward mobility. How can we get a better situation for ourselves? Even simple boredom and lack of appreciation for what God has given to us is an expression of a lack of control on our part when it comes to our appetites. This innate dissatisfaction has become such an everyday part of man's experience that it can be offensive for a preacher to preach against it. I don't have a doubt that some will become really prickly to the things they hear in the word today because we live in a word uh, we live in a world rather where this appetite has been rebranded to become something positive. It's not called the appetite anymore. Now it's called passion. This passion, this desire for more has often been lifted up not as a danger to be addressed but as a universal virtue to be extolled in others. And so we find people saying things like, it doesn't matter what you love, but whatever it is, find it and be passionate about it. Pursue it with all your heart. Go after it with all your strength. So passion itself is exalted, not passion for what is good necessarily, not passion directed properly at objects that are uh, worthy of worship or worthy of our zeal, just passion for passion's sake. Unbridled passion fills the world today. Do you recognize the great danger in having that attitude towards the appetite? Passion is not a virtuous thing if it is fueling a desire for what is wicked, if it fuels the desire for what is contrary to God's perfect will. Some of the most passionate people have been the world's worst sinners. Drug addicts are pretty passionate people. If you've ever gotten to know someone who struggles with addiction, there is a drive that comes along with that chemical connection that makes them set everything aside for the sake of that next to the point that they are willing to give up their jobs, they're willing to give up their family, they're willing to put all of their relationships in jeopardy. They will steal from the people who love them most to get that thing which they are chemically convinced they need, more of that drug. Many people are passionate about their social media. Is this necessarily a good thing? 
Should we admire an appetite for recognition and attention that drives people to constantly post all of the details about their lives, hoping that they will draw the attention and ultimately the envy of the world? How many of these heartbreaking cases that we read about in the news of somebody who is so upset for some reason or another, they go out and they get guns, they go into a public place, and they just start pulling the trigger. How many of those are fueled by the passion of hatred or the passion of dissatisfaction or being spurned and treated unfairly by an employer? No, passion for passion's sake is not a virtue for us to defend, friends. The appetite can be good or it can be bad based on what we are hungering for and what that appetite leads us to do. If we want Jesus to be glorified in our lives, then our appetites must be put into check. They must be cultivated. They've got to be identified. And once we've identified what we are passionate about, they've got to be evaluated. We have to ask ourselves, is this something that the Lord God wants me to be passionate about? Or if I buy into this passion, if I allow this impulse in me to carry me on to action, will I be offending the God that loves me more than anything? One of the greatest gifts that God can give to believers through the book of Ecclesiastes that we're studying right now is a greater understanding of our passions and appetites. Now you might recall that chapter 3 begins by this very poetic expression of God's sovereignty over all time. He says, For everything there is a time and a season under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die. And he goes through and names all the areas of life, every facet of life that God is ordering according to his will. And then right after that section is complete, there's this little verse that is so meaningful. Chapter 3, verse 11, where Solomon says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that man cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. You just sit and think on that verse for the whole day if you wanted to. Think about that. God has put eternity into the hearts of men. What does that mean? That means that he has put into us a desire for something different than what we have. A desire for something eternal. And yet he has not given us the capacity to be able to figure it out on our, on our own. We can't figure out eternity by ourselves. We can only touch eternity if we're trusting in the Lord God himself, who is the only one who is sovereign over time. You see how those things fit together in chapter 3. We learn here that God has given man a particular type of appetite, and yet that appetite can only be solved and satiated when we are near to him. Who can help us get what we were really longing for? No one but the Creator Himself. Only God deals in eternals. And so apart from Him, this longing, this appetite for eternity can never be met. A very important theologian in the history of the Christian church, uh, you might remember me talking about him a little bit on Mother's Day, um, was a man named St. Augustine. And St. Augustine wrote a book called Confessions. It's a very interesting book. It is partly an account of Augustine's personal testimony of conversion, how he came to know the Lord and became passionate for Jesus Christ, his Savior. And it is also uh, a book of prayer. 
It contains several long, lengthy prayers where Augustine himself is not really talking to the reader anymore. He's simply talking to the Lord God and interacting with him as he contemplates these realities of his salvation. And one of the most significant lines that comes out of that that wonderful writing is this. You have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Think about that. You, God, have made us man for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. This coincides perfectly with that shorter catechism of the Westminster Confession we talked about last, uh, last week. We talked about that, that question, what is the chief end of man? Why was man created? We said it was because God wants us to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. That is why we exist. That is where we, what we were made for. And Augustine has grabbed onto this beautifully. This one line of Augustine's writing contains two very important truths. <clears throat> it contains an objective truth, a truth that's just true for all people, and that is that all men were made by God to give Him praise and worship. Cross the line, that's what we're here for. Secondly, it includes a subjective truth, an experiential truth that flows out of our living, the, the, the reality of that first truth. If we worship the Lord, as we were designed to do, we will find peace in Him. But if we do not worship the Lord, if we do not trust Him with our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love Him more than anything else, then we are destined for a restlessness, a lack of peace, an insatiable appetite that will haunt us for life as long as we live. There's an unquenched appetite in man that can only be satisfied in the Savior. Sadly, in our natural state, we are looking to satisfy this passionate longing in anything but God. And the world that we live in does a great job of trying to convince us that we can find this happiness, this peace, in places other than the divine. We find it in our possessions. We find it in our wisdom. We find it in our loves for other people, or at least we think we do, until we're actually in it. And apart from God, all those things which are good if God provides for them, apart from God, those things can be like little prisons of life that keep us from happiness rather than give happiness to us. The appetite that we must deal with can be a blessing. It perpetually puts before us, and we might want to think of this appetite, you might think, why would God put this in us if he didn't give us the capacity to find it out on ourselves? And there's a good reason for it. God wants you to want what is best for you. And so this appetite that can't be quenched anywhere else shows us our essential need. It makes it clear to us that we have a deficit of holiness that needs to be satisfied in the Lord God Himself. It puts before us our essential inability to meet that need on our own. It makes it very clear to us that if we try to do this apart from His guidance and apart from His Word, if we try to do it contrary to His truth, then the result will only ever be more longing, more dissatisfaction. And thirdly, it shows us the absolute necessity for God to meet that need Himself. This appetite is essential to us recognizing our need for the Lord. If you are a Christian today, it is because the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the Gospel, through your reading of Scripture, has made those three things known to you. He's opened your eyes to it. 
and revealed it to your heart of hearts. You've seen that you have an inherent need to be close to your Creator, but you've also seen that you can't get there by yourself, and you've been made aware of this wonderful plan of salvation that Jesus Christ has given to us through His work, through His life, His death, burial, and resurrection. I love how this is described in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. The Apostle Paul, addressing his good friend and fellow elder, says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. That describes life apart from Jesus Christ. That describes the frustrating life of trying to satisfy ourselves with whatever flavor of the day we think is going to make us happy. It never does. It only builds in us a jaded dissatisfaction towards life. But there is hope immediately following this expression of lostness in verse, verse 3, chapter 4, or verse 4 of chapter 3, when it says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So you see the contrast there that if we allow our passions and pleasures, as it is described in verse 3, to, to, to govern us, then they will take us to places of despair and discontent. But if we, through the power of Christ, govern our passions and pleasures, if we allow Jesus to become the object of our eye, then we can experience a renewal by the Holy Spirit and a peace that God alone can provide for us. So to help us get a grip on this appetite that so often rules man, Solomon reveals more of its nature in verse 8. It is clear that Solomon, it's clear to Solomon that man's struggle against his appetite is not an environmental struggle. And I'm not talking about climate change when I say environmental there. What I mean is this is not a struggle that is simply a, a, an offspring of the kind of life you have happened to live based on the circumstances that you've run into. Verse 8 says, For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what advantage does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? So he's using as examples different stations in life, different callings that people might have to live through, different circumstances. He wants us to clearly see that the problem of the appetite is not specific to one class or another. Is wisdom a virtue? Yes, it is something worth seeking for. We are told that by Solomon again and again. Nevertheless, the wise people of this world are not exempt from the struggles of the appetite. The intelligent can be swept up in it just the same as the simple. And you probably know somebody who is smarter than you, yet they are restless. Someone who has a sharper mind and a greater sense for reason. And yet, no matter how much more wisdom they discover, no matter how much they can make you look like a fool by running circles around you intellectually, there is just an unhappiness to the heart. They have an appetite for more, but when they gain it, all they can do is plot a new course for the next destination. They've never really arrived at solutions. 
So wisdom does not exempt us from this appetite problem. Much has been made so far in this book of Ecclesiastes about the failings of money, how riches and wealth cannot satisfy us. But we would be mistaken if we thought that the answer then is to just vow poverty and say, well, if money is such a hindrance that I'm just going to live poor for the rest of my life, that should solve the problem. No. The poor struggle with appetite as well. Remember how we've seen that most of them or some of the most materialistic people in the world are not the people who have a lot of riches, but they're those who are obsessed with the riches they don't yet have. Who think that if they just got wealthy, if they just hit the lottery, they'd be finally happy. That mindset is so far from the truth, friends. And so we cannot, we cannot fall for this worldly notion that an overactive appetite is unavoidable as a consequence of certain life experiences. If it were, then we could blame those circumstances for our misplaced passions. We could use that as an excuse for our sins. And many have tried to do exactly that. Some people, when confronted with their sins, have said, you know, I can't help what I'm doing. I, I can't help this. You know what I've been through? Let me tell you the sad story of how much hardship and heartache that I've had to go through. I'm the product of everyone else hurting me. So this is what I am now. I'm just a broken person. You can't expect me to walk above this because everything I've gone through has made me what I am. You might see somebody else say something like, this is how I was raised. This is my culture. This is, this is all I know. It was instilled in me, so you can't expect me to act differently than what I was raised to do. This is my upbringing. And there are others who would take it even a step further, who would point the blame beyond their parents or beyond their environment and say, this is what God has made me to be. This is actually God's fault. If he did not want me to be a sinner, then he would have created me without this desire to do what is wrong. Everyone wants the responsibility to be anywhere other than themselves. But friends, we can't blame our circumstances because the appetite is not a matter of where you were born or how you were raised or what your culture taught you was acceptable. We see here in verse 8, Solomon reminds us that it's not about what is outside, it's a systemic problem. It is about humanity itself. The root of this issue is the heart of man that is never happy as long as it is not near to the Lord God. And so this problem cannot be solved by simply changing people's environments or giving them money if they don't have it, or getting them better educations. It must be solved in the heart. It must be solved by drawing near to the one good creator. The wise man may be more crafty in the way that he hides his sin, but his sin is still there, and so is his restlessness. The poor man's appetite might not be as easy to identify, but not because it isn't there. Rather, the poor often has not had the opportunity to outwardly express their appetite as much as the wealthy man has. But remember what Solomon wrote elsewhere in the Proverbs. In Proverbs 22.2, Solomon wrote, The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. So God's not looking at your W-2 and putting you in heaven or hell one way or the other based on what you earn. He's not giving you a pass if you had a hard life. There is only one way and one truth and one life, and that is through Jesus Christ. 
And if you try to take any other way, you will not get to the satisfaction that your heart longs for. The challenge is universal. So how can we contend with this appetite which threatens our contentment and can drive us so readily into sin? Here Solomon provides another proverb for us in Ecclesiastes 6.9, one that will not solve the problem of the appetite, but will help us to approach it with the right attitude. Verse 9 says again, Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. This is a wonderfully profound statement here. If our great appetite for something better than what we have goes unchecked, it's going to cause us to live most of our days in the strata of the what if. It's going to cause us to be wrapped up in the could be instead of reality. So much wrapped up in fantasy and potential that the reality of life that is directly in front of us will end up going unloved, unappreciated, and unexperienced. Even man apart from God has identified this problem and has tried to think around it. And so you might have heard in the secular world sayings such as, you know, you got to stop and smell the roses sometimes. Or you've heard things like, you got to live in the here and the now. Or, or you only live once, so make sure you make the most of the life that you have right here in front of you. See, these are, these are just cliches from the secular world, but there are grains of truth there. They don't constitute a satisfactory strategy for living life, but a man who ignores the wisdom in them runs the risk of sailing his ship of life endlessly to a shore that never comes. Satisfaction with worldly things, as Charles Bridges puts it, is a phantom only imagined but never reached. So let's take a moment to think about the technical language of verse 9 and what the preacher of Ecclesiastes is teaching us through it. He says, Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. Of two things that may be, one is comparatively better than the other. So we may rightly conclude that having an appetite is not itself sin. The preacher doesn't say, Never have an appetite and you'll be good. Have an appetite and you're in sin. No, he says, there are different ways to live here. And it is better to live focused on the here and now rather than to always live in this atmosphere of wonder and imagination and maybe. It is God, after all, who has put eternity into man's heart, right? He wouldn't have given us a longing for him if longing itself was wrong. Just as longing or passion is not this universal virtue to be extolled, it is also not this universal sin that is to be denied. We are not to live like Stoics and flush our passions away so that we'll be righteous. That's not how it works. God is, by His very nature, beyond us, isn't He? He is greater than us. And so it is impossible to totally comprehend Him with our limited minds. The only way that we can approach God is with an appetite towards what we don't inherently have. Having an appetite, therefore, is not itself sin. But this appetite must be checked and managed or else it can do us great damage. God has allowed room in the human existence for wondering, for wandering, for speculating, for dreaming. Being created things that only ever see a fraction of what is real, we cannot help but imagine 
It's how we deal with a reality we don't fully understand. We cannot help but theorize and think beyond what we know. And don't you ever imagine what heaven is like? I hope that you do. I hope that you imagine its wonders. I hope that you take what scriptures we do have about heaven, and then you begin to think, wow, how, how amazing is it going to be to live in an existence where sin doesn't even touch you anymore, where temptation is absolutely extinct, and all you ever want to do is what is righteous and good, where you don't have to struggle against yourself to be a holy person, but rather God has glorified you in such a way that you can only be a holy person. You can only be righteous before God. Won't that be an incredible relief for us? We should dream about things like that, things that we have not yet experienced, but that are promised to us, things that are not described in total detail, but things which God has given us oppressions of in his scripture. We should dream towards those things. Don't you ever imagine what it would be like to live in the earliest days of the church? Have you read the first part of Acts and thought, wow, that was radical what God did back then? You read chapter 4 and the last portion of that where it says that all the people were of one heart and mind. That they were so fixated on the one thing that mattered that that's what they were all thinking about and talking about and, and, and fixed on. Jesus Christ, the Savior, has come. He's radically changed our lives. This is what we live for now. And you read about this church and how, how those who had needs, those who had much in the way of physical resources would sell what they had just to meet the needs of their brothers and sisters and didn't think twice about it because they had learned that their appetites for worldly things didn't matter anymore. If God gives, so be it, we'll enjoy it. But if God needs it for something else, we give it to the work of the Lord. We see people radically coming to know the Lord. We see miracles happening. Have you ever thought about being a part of that early church? You should. Now, I'm going to burst your bubble a little bit. The early church was a church filled with people. So some people think, well, there's this formula that we've just lost over time. If we could just go back to being exactly what the early church was, then it'll all work out perfectly. Well, the early church had conflicts too. Keep reading in the book of Acts. You're going to see there was conflicts. You're going to see there was people arguing about what to do and where to go and how to do it. But man, how, how exciting would it have been to be a part of that early expression of God's will in the first church? It is not wrong for a single person, for example, to imagine what it would be like to have a spouse and to have a family. There's nothing wrong with that. That could be a beautiful gift that the Lord might one day choose to give to you. But we mustn't allow the allure of what we don't know to overshadow that which God has actually given us the knowledge to know now. If your dreams of having a family, for example, make you loathe the single life, then that specific dream is not driving you to greater joy. It is stealing the joy that God has given to you now, and it needs to be put into check. If God has got you in singleness right now, then yeah, you can, you can dream about one day being married, but don't let that dream spoil what God has put you through right today. Your station in life is a station that God has determined for you. And remember, every season, every time under heaven is His sovereign designation. He makes no mistakes. The wandering of our minds and the wonder of imaginations cannot be allowed to displace what is concrete, especially if those wanderings have the net effect of making us dismayed with what we have, with what we've been given, with what God has allowed us to know today. So let us realize that in all of this wondering and all of this trying to figure out 
what is good and what is bad when it comes to our appetite, realize that God's word has been given to us as a guide, as a litmus test against what our appetites and passions, uh, whether they are good or bad. When we compare our dreams to the the word of God, we can see whether they're dreams worth dreaming or not. We can see whether we've taken them too far. The jury of scripture does not preside over our actions alone. It presides over our passions and appetites as well. In other words, God is not just concerned with what you do. He's concerned with what you love. He's concerned with what you think about. So maybe you don't commit sin, but you like to watch sin being glorified on the silver screen and you think that's good in your mind, but you never would do it because you don't want to get in trouble with God. Well, just even thinking that that stuff is good is actually a sin because you're glorifying in your mind that which God has said you should turn away from, that you should, you should hate. So we shouldn't even entertain in our minds the imagination of doing sinful things and getting away with it. Rather, we should, we should want what is good and holy. We should let the Lord God and His Word govern not just what we do, but what is going on inside of our hearts and minds as well. It's okay to imagine what God might accomplish in you, but there's a greater advantage in seeing what God and His perfect will has put before you right now. What He wants to happen is happening. Let us reflect on it. Let us learn from it. Join Him in the midst of the work that He is doing in the here and now, or else we'll miss out on what He wants for us right now. There is so much at stake here, friends. We live in a world that would love to try to distract your passions towards things that don't matter. We have an enemy who wants you ever dissatisfied and not complete in the Lord God. And so what are some ways that we might be able to apply this, this honing, this cultivation of a right attitude, a right appetite towards the Lord? My first suggestion is this. May God's revealed will become the motivation of your appetite. May God's revealed will, may the scripture that is trustworthy, the things that you can know that he wants for you because they are written in his word, let that become the motivation of your appetite. God's will is so trustworthy. None can oppose his will. His will cannot be stifled. Everything that God wants to happen will happen. So doesn't it make sense that we would try to conform what we desire to what God desires? It's being a part of the winning team. If God's going to let his will be done, then learn to love what God wants because no one's going to stop him. If you consistently want what you want and it's opposed to what God wants, guess what's going to happen? You're not going to get the thing that you want. Or if you get it, it will be to your destruction. Have you ever thought about this? This is a a deep thought on prayer for you this morning, okay? Anytime that you would ever pray and change God's mind about the way that he's directing your life, it would turn out to be a curse for you. If you could change God's mind about anything, it could only hurt you because God's mind's perfect. God knows exactly what you need. He knows exactly what is best for you. And that is why Jesus, when he's teaching his disciples how to pray, says the first thing you've got to do in prayer is you've got to honor God. Hallowed be thy name, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Right up front there. And God's example to us of prayer through Jesus Christ is that we should pray the will of God over our lives. Not that we would go in ready 
to, to show them the list of the ways that we've been obedient to him, to show them how much virtue equity we've built up so that he has to feel bad and not give us what we want. No, we should go into our prayer ready to receive whatever he has for us and thankful for it. Let us conform our will to the will of God. Rather than trying to change God's mind, let us hit our knees and ask God to change our mind. God, to me, I don't understand why I lost this job. I don't know why I'm struggling right now. To me, you know that I want to provide for my family. You know I don't have enough. So change my mind about this situation because I'm so frustrated right now and I'm tired and I don't have the answers, God. Change my mind. Help me to be faithful. Doesn't it make more sense to pray that way than to pray, God, I think I can see this more clearly than you can, so you got to get me my job back or you got to get me a better job because if I don't, you might not know this yet, but if I don't get a job soon, my money's going to run out. God knows way before we know every step of the journey and every way that it will affect us and impact us. So let us learn to pray that God would change our minds, that God would conform us to his will and to his way. Secondly, may you rejoice with gratitude more in what you've been given than in what you might someday get. Oh, man, this is, this is so critical with prosperity gospel flourishing in our nation right now. People saying that you've got to claim what God's going to do for you, and as long as you believe it, you're going to get it. That's not what the example of Scripture here is. We need to thank the Lord God for what he has done. We need to thank the Lord God for what he is doing and then trust him for whatever he chooses to do in the future. Can we be thankful for what he has given? What you have right now, no matter what you have, what you have is beautiful. And you might not be able to see that where you're at from your perspective, especially if the lies and deceit of the world have built walls around you. But what you have from God is a beautiful gift of generous generous graciousness from the hand of the Creator. You might not be as well off as the people around you. You might not have the great health that they have, but you are alive and you are bearing the image of God in your very person. And if you have Jesus Christ as your Savior, there are great eternal promises that will unfold for you guaranteed by the hand of God. You will not suffer for long. You will not have to deal with the hardships you're enduring right now for very much longer. In the, in the context of reality, God has so much more in store for you. So no matter what you have today, determine to be thankful for it. We need to become better accountants when it comes to grace. We're very poor accountants. All we can think about is the next thing, and we often do it at the ignorance of the things that have come. God has put so much energy and effort into making you what you are today. And yet because of this perpetual dissatisfaction, if we don't check that, then we will forget to praise him for how long he has brought us. God has made you a different person in Christ. He has given you power to overcome sin that you never had by yourself apart from him. Can't we take count of that and rejoice in the things that he has given? Can't we sit and, and for hours tell him back the things that he has done to make us different than we were before we knew him. Let us rejoice with gratitude more in what we've been given than in what we might one day get. Thirdly, may you recognize that even the thing that you don't want that is happening in your life right now, that trial, that challenge, 
that roadblock, even the thing that you don't want is the effective will of God for you. It can work a growing and a maturing in your heart that might become an unexpected blessing for you. When we can grab a hold of that reality and understand that, okay, I don't know why this is happening to me right now, but the Lord God being sovereign and being in control of all things will work this to some sort of good, then it takes so much of the stress off of us. We stop feeling compelled to pray that God would get us out of the fire every single moment. Give me safety. Give me comfort. Give me relief. But instead, we would say, Jesus, give me more of yourself. Prepare me. If I'm going to be in this fire, I want to be standing in this fire with you right next to me. How many times have you gone through a trial and you prayed, God, I can handle it if you'll just tell me why. If you'll just tell me the good thing that's going to come from this, that's all I need, I'll put up with it, just make me know that this isn't a waste of my time, that this is not for no reason. And then on the other end of the line, you get silence. God chooses not to tell you why. And you search and you try to discern it yourself. You read the word and you're like, I just can't figure out why I had to go through this. It doesn't make any sense to me. And it might not ever until glory. But many of you could probably testify here today about how two years down the road, 10 years down the road, you were able to look back on that almost forgotten trial that you went through and see how it either prepared you for what you were going through today and strengthened you, or readied you to minister to somebody else who's going through the exact same thing in their own life, or how now with greater maturity and a better understanding of the word, you can finally see the why. God has it under control. And we would do well to train our appetite to be thankful that even if the will of God is not matching our will, that it will be effective in us, that he will use it as part of his story in our lives. Lastly, may you learn to say amen when your growing appetite for the Lord causes your appetite for lesser things to fade away. I mentioned earlier that this type of a sermon would probably be offensive to some because it puts into question whether some of the things that we enjoy doing the most in life are really godly things. If we're serious about God's word, we have to step back and ask ourselves, is this glorifying to the Lord? Does it have any eternal value at all? Would I be embarrassed if the Lord came back today and I was doing this thing that has been so big a part of my life for so long that I can't even imagine me without it? But if this is not glorifying to the Lord God, if it's not part of His will for my life, then why am I expending my energies on this appetite which is directing me away from God instead of towards Him? The life of a Christian is a life of sanctification. It is a refinement process. And so as we walk forward in faith, you have to expect that there will be times when God will say, I know you've held on to this one for a long time, but it's time for you to hand it over to me. It's time for you to put it to the side because I have a greater appetite for you. I have something that will bless you eternally that needs to be in your life in place of that thing that is so temporary and fleeting. Don't believe the lies of the world anymore. Don't be captivated by that thing that used to be your favorite thing when you realize that that thing doesn't do you any eternal good at all. May we say amen when God says, you don't need that anymore. 
It can even be in the form of relationships with people that we've spent time around. And you know that when you're around those people, you're not influencing them for the Lord as much as they're influencing you away from the Lord. It might be time for you to step back from that relationship. It might be time for you to realize that, that if you're not being used as salt and life in, in light in their lives, then maybe the Lord needs to use somebody else for that. It can be so hard to be pruned. I imagine that when I'm out pruning my trees after the fruit season is over, I'm cutting back all those branches, and I think to myself, I hope this thing doesn't die. You know, you follow the internet instructions sometimes when you're trimming your stuff, and you're like, this is pretty radical. I don't know if this bush is going to make it. I don't know if these roses are going to come back, right? But they're essential. If you don't trim those things back, then they're not going to bear the fruit that they're supposed to bear next year. They're not going to bear the flowers that they were supposed to bear, and God wants you bearing fruit for the kingdom of heaven. Better is the sight of the eyes, that which is concrete, that's which, that which God has put right before us, than the wandering of the appetite, daydreaming about what may one day come to pass, trying to figure out your own will for yourself instead of letting God give you His will. But both of these are part of the temporary world. One's better than the other, but both of them are under this veil of vanity. Koholeth still calls them both vanity and chasing after the wind. While appetite management will require some time and effort and it's worth your energy, it's not the whole object of your life. We live to do more than just manage our appetites. We live to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But we will do that with more focus and satisfaction if we don't let our appetites draw us away from God's current will for our life. Let's pray and thank the Lord for this word. God, we praise you and thank you that things that would be mysterious to us are made plain by your Spirit. Father, we don't need a seminary education to discern the truths of your Word. Father, let us just take the time to carefully consider these things and to ask how you might use them in our lives to make us more like Christ. I pray, Father, that we would be content with the things that you give and even that we would bless your name for the things that you have taken away from us that we've held on to for far too long. I pray that you're working that in people's lives even now as, as we pray. May your Holy Spirit direct us and guide us, Lord God. Help us to be ever a living sacrifice for you that you might be glorified in us. We pray this in Jesus' perfect name. Amen.